Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the Autosport Podcast. It's a takeover today. Our good friends at motorsport.com just launched their very own podcast. This is the third show. They asked nicely if they could do a takeover and publish their podcast in our feed. And then they told us they were going to be doing a show all about the Indy 500. And we realized that we could have a lane on Monday morning and not have to think about podcasting until this weekend's Belgian Grand Prix. So we said, yes, here is their show this week. It's a new podcast. If you want to subscribe to them, you can just search the motorsport.com podcast. Apple, Google, Spotify, all your usual places. Andrew Van Leeuwen is your host, our resident Aussie. On this show, he ropes in... Uh, from the US, David Malsha Lopez uh, regularly writes about Indy and what with Sato winning the 500. Uh, we had to go to Tokyo for our man in Japan, Jamie Klein, also appears on this show. If you like their podcast, please do subscribe to it and check it out. They publish new shows every single week. Autosport Podcast is back this Thursday with a Belgian GP preview with Alex as usual. There you go. Welcome to the Motorsport.com podcast, a showcase of the Motorsport Network's far-reaching global team and an opportunity to talk motor racing with our experts located all over the world. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia, and it will come as no surprise that our first guest today, just a few hours after the 104th running of the Indy 500, is our US editor, David Mauscher Lopez. David, how'd you pull up after that one? exciting but then it always is uh you know it could be a stone cold drag and it would still be exciting because it's the indy 500 but uh i think it's a, a brilliant uh result there's lots of pain and heartache in there as well though because you, your heart bleeds for scott dixon who just kicked everyone's ass for 111 laps of the 200 uh but uh you know he's got joys in other ways like being like a 73 time IndyCar champion or whatever. So, uh, and he now has a ridiculous lead in the championship as well. So, but yeah, I'm sorry for him. That guy will should not retire 
until he has at least another 500 title to his name. Well, we'll uh, we'll definitely get into all of that. It's uh, it's equally fitting that our um our next guest is coming to us live from Tokyo, Japan. Jamie Klein, are they partying in the streets there after that triumph for Takuma Sato? Absolutely incredible scenes. I mean, I think it's fair to say that anybody watching the Indy 500 from Japan was on the world's worst time zone for it. The race started at 3.30 in the morning, finished around 6.30 in the morning, but anyone who did stay up for it was treated to, you know, their, their home hero taking his second 500 victory. So uh, well worth it for those that did stay up. Um I, I managed to grab a few hours of sleep either side. Um, so uh, good to go and uh, delve into Takuma's uh, victory a bit more now. Well, I can, I can tell you as an Aussie, I have no sympathy for anyone complaining about <laughs> sitting up late to watch a sporting event because uh, apart from, I think, maybe the 2002 World Cup, which was in Japan and, and South Korea, I think everything worth watching generally takes place in the <laughs> middle of the night. So too bad. It's always funny when people in Europe complain about the Australian Grand Prix and this and that. And it's like, yeah, well, we have to sit up in the middle of the night for the other 18 19 races whatever so um so too bad it's uh it's it's part and parcel of yeah living in this in this yeah exactly so it's what i signed up for so can't complain let's talk a bit about takuma sato he's stayed in the u.s through the pandemic you know that means he's away from his family he's away from his kids i don't know how when the last time he saw his kids was i mean what a what a payoff for that sacrifice and and what a story for indycar absolutely i mean the guy is you know i mean he he used to do some crazy maneuvers he makes does far fewer of them now so i mean just as a guy he is just an absolute delight to hang out with uh delight to interview fantastic extensive uh, answers don't think anyone can begrudge him success uh there will be a few that are puzzled over uh why the race wasn't red flagged uh and there will be some people who maybe think that uh yeah Dixie, because he was so dominant on the day, and he absolutely was, uh, he deserved that race more than uh, Sato. But yeah, even even he isn't sure whether Sato would have had the fuel to get to the end. Maybe he would, maybe he would. Sato made the move, he took the chance, and as he always says, no attack, no chance. And uh, magnificent payoff, and uh, couldn't happen to a nicer dude. What do you reckon? Do you reckon he would have made it if, if we'd gone green to the end? Uh, he, he says he he was going back and forth with his uh, fuel, uh, rich and lean, uh, switching it back and forth. So I don't know. I don't know if he could have done it. I think maybe if if ultimately he'd had to go to full lean and uh, Dixie had made a challenge, I think Ray Hulk, uh, Graham Rahal could be sitting here as the Indy 500 champion because I think Sato and Dixie might have ended up fencing it. So either way, <laughs> that's a Ray Hulk Etzman and Carl was going uh, to win. Um but I think he could have made it, yeah. Um, but he'd have had to have made his car very, very wide. But he'd already done that two or three times, so yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no qualms on on that score. So yeah, I think he'd have done it. Jamie, I mean, as a fan of of sport and of motor racing, it is kind of nice. I mean, I, I feel for, for 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 Scott Dixon as well. But it's nice to see someone sort of roll the dice and get a reward from it. You know, he seemed to be he had that moment at the end there where he was just pushing. He didn't seem to be worried about fuel. It's nice to see sort of someone going for it and getting something out of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, all the way back from his Formula One days, we know Sato's always been you know, extremely aggressive and uh, 
at times it hasn't paid off. Obviously, the 2012 uh, indie showdown with Dario Franchitti being the most notorious example of where the aggression didn't didn't uh, end up paying off. But on this occasion, yeah, it was absolutely masterful, and I think it was it was nice just to see someone give Dixon a real challenge at the end because it looked like Dixon for almost all the race was just in a total class of his own. Yeah. And I was really surprised actually to see Sato kind of go with him and then make the move and then kind of keep Dixon at arm's length. It kind of seemed that Dixon was just hanging back, saving fuel. But when it came to it and man- and Sato managed to get, I think Tony Canaan's lapped uh, AJ Foyt car in between him and Dixon, it seemed at that moment uh, that Sato had more or less, you know, done enough. Um, obviously, with the fuel situation notwithstanding, but I think that was uh, that was another kind of extra risk he took towards the end, just to really seal the deal. So yeah, hats off to him. That, that, that's an interesting point. I, I'll tell you one thing: there would have been newspaper writers around Australia with their um, Brisbane-born Scott Dixon wins the Indy 500 stories uh, <laughs> ready to go because Aussies love nothing more than claiming a successful Kiwi is one of our own. It's one of our. Uh, it's one of our most proudest traditions, but um, yeah, that, that, that's that's a good point, Jamie, about that lap traffic. Because um, yeah, I wanted to like, it, it felt like he'd almost done enough. Take the fuel thing out of the equation, like you say. What do you think, David? Do you think he'd done enough already? Um, yeah, I, I do. I mean, Dixon was kind of like kicking as as well as uh, kind of like wondering if Sato was going to make it on fuel. He was also kicking himself a little bit at the end because he said he thinks he maybe should have done more with his tools to adjust the car to make it better for handling and traffic and maybe not uh, sat back so long or maybe defended stronger in the first place. Um, but the fact that there's even a question mark there suggests that Sato did the right thing because, you know, if you're casting even the might of Ganassi's uh, judgment into doubt, then uh, that suggests that, yeah, you did the right thing by taking a chance. Um and yeah, I mean, if he hadn't adjusted the tools well enough, who knows how well Dixie could or could not have picked his way through the traffic uh, at the end. So yeah, no, I think I regard it as a legitimate win. You know, it wasn't it wasn't someone untalented. I mean, hell, it was a previous winner of the race that won it. So yeah, he took the chance when he could, and he wasn't going to get a lot of them around Dixon. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think he did he did the right thing. And I think he just kind of like caught Ganassi on the hop somewhat. Let's get on to that sort of controversial incident at the end there. Um, Jamie, are you surprised that the race officials let that run um, at the end? You know, well, not let it run, but, but didn't red flag that race after that frightening crash for Spencer Pigon. Yeah, it seems unusual that with, uh, with kind of five laps to run, I think when, when the picket smash happened, um, I, I seem to recall in previous Indy 500s when we've had something dramatic happen with, you know, 10, 15 laps to go, they've always, you know, red flagged it very quickly and ensured we've had a green finish. But this time it just seemed perhaps five laps to the end was just kind of on the, on the limit of where they could try and restart it um, and it was obviously a big big impact for Spencer and a uh, huge relief to see that in the end after you know having to go to the to the medical center and uh, getting checked up after that huge hit that he was basically it seems unscathed so a uh, big relief there but maybe it was just just on the limit of where they could consider red flagging it I'm not sure what you think Masha. Uh, well that was their claim afterwards they said uh 
Uh, IndyCar, make, their official statement was IndyCar makes every effort to end races on the green, but in this case, following the assessment of the incident, there were too few laps remaining to gather the field behind the pace car, issue a red flag, and then restart for a green flag finish. I mean, I, I'm kind of with them there because you'd have, I mean, it's never good to shut those engines down uh, straight away while they're hot. Uh, then you get going, going for one warm up lap, then all hell breaks loose. I mean, you could have had, yeah, uh, four laps. Uh, four laps of green flag running. And Dixie did say afterwards that if that had, if that had been what had happened, he said he'd have been past Sato because, you know, irregardless of the fact that Sato was now probably okay for fuel because of, you know, idling to a standstill on that yellow flag lap, um, you know, the leader was just a sitting duck on uh, because of the aerodynamics of these cars at the moment. Was there any leader that managed to hold on to his lead at, on a restart today? Oh, yeah, probably Dixon. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, generally the leader is a sitting duck if the guy behind gets I mean, Pagano's, uh, Pagano's move for the, for the lead uh, earlier was uh, absolute, absolutely peachy. Like he just stuck up behind Askew and then just drafted straight past him. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Uh, I think Dixon's right. If the race had been restarted, he would have won. Three of the most controversial words in supercars racing are time certain finish, you know, where the TV window pushes yeah. up and they have to cut races short if there's been big stoppages. Was is? Do you think there was an elephant, uh, an element of, of the broadcast playing a role in the decision to just let that let the race peter out like that? Because there have been, a, there have been 52, 52 yellow flag laps, you know, that's a quarter of the race right there. Um, so we're knocking on the door of... Uh, TV window, the winning time was three hours, 10 minutes. I've got to say it flew by because it was so entertaining. But the other problem is like the NASCAR cliche goes, yellows breed yellows. If there had just been an almighty shunt within those last four laps of, you know, of a restarted race, mm. then you could have had a kind of like crazy situation with the wrong person winning. Uh, and, um, yeah, then you still bust through your TV window and you still uh, end up with an unsatisfactory finish and you have carnage and, yeah. No, I mean, I think they did the right thing, personally. Yeah, I think I think whatever the officials decide in these situations, there's always going to be people that are happy with the outcome, people that feel aggrieved with the outcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're never going to satisfy everybody, so I think... At the end of the day, you just have to respect, you know, the information they have and all the factors they weigh up. And uh, at least as we've kind of all agreed, Sato was a worthy winner. So you can't take anything away from that. I think Absolutely. I might have sent them, might have sent them down uh, pit lane rather than on the track past the guy that was kind of like woozy from a hideous shunt. Um, I thought that was a bit brazen of them to leave, leave the car still staying on the track rather than heading down pit lane. Um, but yeah, that was just a minor quibble. Jamie mentioned how lucky um, Pickett was to to effectively walk away from that one. I mean, I guess it it shows that you know we've seen IndyCar be quite bold in its in its safety strategy uh, recently. And I guess you know that that, that the way pit lane sticks out is always going to be that's about as dangerous as it's going to get there. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a mm. it's a bit of a win for IndyCar that he's walked away from that one now. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's truly a hideous shunt and uh paul tracy pointed out that without the uh, cockpits around there the tires that form that 
you know, the attenuator uh, at the end of pit line, they could have all kind of like gone over, gone over his head because he hit it absolutely sideways on. Uh, I think, I mean, aside from all the wonderful side impact things that Delara built into the actual cockpit structure itself, having the aero screen, uh, I think it just got vindicated for a second time, just like it did at Iowa uh, after the Colton Herta Arena uh, VK collision. I think it's truly remarkable. And it wasn't even the first vicious shunt of the day because uh, um, Oliver Askew's uh, impact was enormous. I'm not saying that the yeah. screen particularly helped him. What helped him was it, the car just spinning, so he ended up hitting at 45 degrees rather than there was a moment where it looked hideously like he was going to go head on uh, into the wall on pity. And that would have just been um, yeah, violent. Uh, to say the least, but yeah, his car just had enough room to spin to 45 degrees, so it wasn't quite so bad. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I think IndyCar safety protocols are pretty spot on. Yeah. So we um, something that's interesting is that we had a 40 year old racing a 43 year old at the end of the uh, the race. <laughs> the older <laughs> the old blokes go pretty good around uh, around the uh, the brickyard. Like you know, it's Scott Dixon. It's it's the the last time he went a season about winning a race was something ridiculous like 2004. Is he on track to becoming IndyCar's goat, Mousher? Is he is he going to go down as the guy? I think you definitely have to say he's the best guy in the last 30 years. And as soon as you start dealing in such big numbers as 30 years and when you then uh, yeah start looking back beyond 30 years is he as good as you know uh, Rick Mears was in his heyday is he as good as you know for Andretti uh, the answers were I, I think he I think he was because uh, I think he is uh, he takes full advantage of having a, a fantastic team I mean you got but you got to say that the reliability of cars is so superior to what it was then but on the other hand, I'd say the competition is far tougher. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yep. Yeah. The you know when you used to look back at some of the Indy 500s, uh, I mean Rick Mears won it, won the 500 by two laps, won you? Um, so yeah, I, I I think it all balances out, and I think you have to have him uh, in the conversations one of the greatest of all time. I believe there are people within the field in his 20 years that have got his raw talent. I don't think there's anyone that has honed it and taken full advantage of it quite as well as he has. Yeah, I have to agree, really. I mean, ever since I've been watching IndyCar, Dixon's always been, you know, there or thereabouts, even in the years where, you know, he's either been on the wrong side of the engine battle or the aero battle or whatever. He's always found a way to at least grab a couple of wins, uh, even if not go for a title challenge. But obviously the years that he has had the advantage... Uh, he's been fairly unstoppable. And of course, we saw at the start of this year stringing together, you know, three wins to kick off the campaign. And as we touched upon earlier now with his second place at Indy, he's got a huge lead in the championship. So I think we're looking at, you know, we're looking at almost almost certainly uh, a six-time champion uh, in the in the IndyCar series. And uh, that puts him in pretty rare air, just as it is, if you just consider that achievement alone. So... Yeah, have to agree with it with your with your assessment, Dixon. There, I think, uh, especially yeah, and he's got a few more years. Um, you know, probably uh-huh. could keep going for another four or five years, and it's certainly conceivable he could win maybe one or two more titles in that time. So, yeah, hundred percent, he's going to be in the conversation come the day he retires. 
There you have it. Yeah. The, Br- the Brisbane bullet himself, Australia's <laughs> favourite IndyCar driver. Let's talk a bit about uh, about Alexander Rossi. You know, he was a contender in that race for that. That yeah. penalty, you know, put him back in the field. And then once he was back in that traffic, he sort of alluded after the race that that contributed to him crashing out of the race. Um, he said that he wants to have a long conversation with someone about that penalty. David, does he have a does he have a case? Is he going to find someone that wants to have a long conversation with him about it? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I don't think he does have a case because he kind of like – live by the sword, die by the sword, and you live by your team, die by the team. And the fact is, the team sent him out straight into the path of Takuma Sato. And in all these times of IndyCar, you know, pushing for car safety, car safety, car safety, this kind of crap of someone being sent uh, sent out and leaving vulnerable people, such as the pit crews, you know, in the line of fire, you know, I mean, bear in mind, half the field, more than half the field of pitting uh, at any one time in a not too wide pit lane and I've seen someone's leg torn up by uh, uh, a car losing it in pit lane before and it's something I never want to see again and um, I I think it's important for the uh, vulnerable um, to be protected and you cannot risk having cars running into each other on pit lane it just it's sickening. I, I hold my breath every time I see a yellow flag pit stop run because I'm just thinking of all those poor folks surrounding the cars uh, with their backs to the cars. They're kind of like scooting out behind them. It, like, no, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies. So, uh, no, I, I mean, I'm not p- placing any blame on uh, Rossi at all. I mean, even before the aero screen, it's pretty darn hard to look out with a hands device. You, can't, you can only turn so far. Uh, your peripheral vision is somewhat limited at that point. But yeah, with an aero screen as well, no. He just has to go when his folks tell him to go. And uh, if he's uh, he's uh, if he's not ready, I mean, if you're slow to go, that can also put you in jeopardy as well or put someone else in jeopardy. So you need to go instantaneously. He went instantaneously. And unfortunately, the signal was too soon. And... If his car was as strong as he, as it should have been, um, you know the the team don't need to panic into sending him straight into the path of uh, Takuma Sato's car. I mean, when you look back at it, thinks he could have got a gift of a win if uh, Rossi had wiped out Sato's front wing on that stop. Um, so, yeah, no, I just don't think there's a case to be made there for Rossi. I mean, it breaks my heart. I love his aggression. I love his speed. Uh, but nah. uh, the officials, uh, the officials did the right thing. And what about the uh, what about the Penske cars? I mean, Joseph Newgarden kind of hung in there a bit, but it never felt like they were in the game. Talk, talk us through why that was. Uh, well, starting twenty second, twenty fifth, and twenty eighth, um, they had to go off strategy. They did, and it worked for a while. Uh, and then uh, the way one of the cautions fell. Uh, it kind of put everyone back onto the same strategy and just dumped Penske out, those three Penske cars outside the top 20. Um, so, because they had to pair at the same time. I'm trying to remember whose yellow flag that was that caused that. But I mean, they just weren't strong uh, in traffic. They were decent, or Joseph's was. And Will had some really good restarts. I used to say that that was the weakest part of his game, but he made some really good restarts and got up to uh, eight. 
at one point today uh, on strategy uh, with the rest. And then uh, Herder got past him, and then he had a there was a bat, he made one bad restart, uh, fell back to uh, fell back to twelfth, and then he screwed his final pit stop or the uh, penultimate pit stop and hit some bit of equipment, uh, which slowed him up. So yeah, I mean that was Herder uh, did. I mean he was he was there, and when they were, when the off strategy was working, uh, he was there in the top four. You know it was. Uh, Power, Pajano and uh, Castro Neves, along with Oliver Aski in the uh, Aaron McLaren SP. But, uh, yeah, they needed that strategy to work. They certainly didn't have the pace to carve through the pack. And I'm not sure who does these days because it's that much more difficult to do so because of the aerodynamics of these cars. Uh, so, yeah, a, a very strange day for Penske. But, to be honest, uh, I think Roger... Roger was happy that the show went off without too much of a hitch. Yeah, I can imagine it's still so weird to have a you know have an Indy 500 and just have Penske cars. Just feel like they're sort of they're not really in that in that fight. Speaking about struggling for for pace, you know Fernando Alonso stole all the headlines in the build up as usual, but he wasn't really a factor either. Mm. That Jamie, that triple crown still feels a way off, sort of based on what we saw there, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Obviously, we saw his crash in practice in the lead up and it just kind of felt that kind of knocked the wind out of his sails a little bit. I know he was talking a big game even after that, that he had the car to kind of carve his way through the field. But I think realistically from that far down the field, it was unlikely to happen. Um, and of course, it so it kind of proved in the race. He, we never really saw him hit the front. Even I think he tried to go off strategy at one point, but then seemed to go back onto the like the next yellow flag. He pitted again and just reverted to the usual strategy. And we never really saw him sort of make the progress that uh, he was saying that he was able to make. And with regards to the triple crown, you're absolutely right. I mean, for the next two years, we know he's not going to be back to the speedway because Renault has already ruled that out. So. We're looking at, what, 2023 for his next attempt. And the years are just running out, quite frankly. And looking back now, you kind of have to think that the 2017 race was the big missed chance, I think, to, for him to, to get the Triple Crown. Yeah, same deal with the Penske's, really, as we were talking. It was going to be really hard for anyone to make that uh, amount of progress, uh, unless the off strategy suddenly becomes the on strategy, uh, the way yellows fall, and that just wasn't the case today. Uh, and I think uh, Fernando's pace was adequate, uh, but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't startling. He had a uh, and he had a clutch problem, which was limiting him in pit stops as well. He always needed a push start. Uh, but yeah, I mean, generally, it was just fairly unremarkable. Uh, and it's it's such a shame because we know he's such a, a warrior. Uh, I was kind of like laughing ironic, ironically and sympathetically at the fact that you say, well, at least I did my 500 miles. And it's like, no, mate, you finished the lap down. You actually didn't. <laughs> uh, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I do I do feel sorry for him that uh, he's not going to get those you know, opportunities next year. The one thing this has proven is that, uh, you know, next year though, everyone was saying, well, look, Monaco Grand Prix isn't on the same day as uh, Indy 500, so Renault doesn't have to give permission or whatever. He can just go and do it, uh, even though qualifying weekend would be on the same weekend as uh, uh, Monaco. But yeah. 
and you know you could just have his car qualified by someone else yes but when you take it over you then have to start at the back of the field and if you can't climb from 26 you ain't climbing from 33rd so um, I, I think yeah. Formula One contract driver contracts are a little more complicated than uh, you just have to be in this place on this weekend no. as well. I yeah. reckon, I reckon yeah. there'd be uh, there'd be something in there going. Yeah, no, you can't just go and uh, you can't just go and do that. Whether there's a weekend, the calendar becomes the least of the dramas. I think uh, in those uh, <laughs> yeah. in that situation. Yeah, but, um, um, imagine if he did. If he did, you know. Moonlight at the 500s coming from Larson had a huge shunt and ruled himself out the rest of the season. I think the, the Renault bosses would be absolutely apoplectic. So no way in hell that's happening. Yep. You think there's a bit of investment going in from the uh, from Renault HQ there and they're going to want to see a return on it uh, on Grand Prix weekends for sure. Let's have a bit of a quick chat about some of the two-wheeled action. And um, boy, mm. what, a, what a crazy weekend to get or a crazy race again. Uh, at Spielberg for a second week in a row, you know, different reasons. It was crazy this time. That last corner action with uh, Miguel Oliveira, Jack Miller, and uh, Paul es- Espagara. It's just I'm just struggling with these names today. Jamie, what's this going to mean for Tech Three to go and get a win like this? Yeah, absolutely huge. I mean, Tech Three has been kind of plugging away in the Premier class since the year 2000, actually, and they'd never got a win. They were always the kind of number two Yamaha team right up until. Uh, basically last season when they switched to the uh, the KTM camp, um, they had a couple of chances where they were kind of close to wins with you know, Colin Edwards and Ben Spees and then Jan Zarco as well uh, in 2018 was uh, was very close to winning uh, on a couple of occasions but didn't quite happen. Uh, and then when they switched to KTM, they basically went to the back of the field because the KTM was still kind of a developing bike and they didn't have their heads around it. Anyway, of course, we know that KTM has made a big step this year. We saw Brad Binder get the get the marks first win in Bruno, uh, and of course, Spargaro himself was very close to to getting his first win on the bike as well. But, but just that final corner with uh, him and Miller in a kind of action replay of some of the Mark Marquez Andrea Dovizioso battles we've seen at that last corner. Except this yeah. time, there was a rider in third that was there to take advantage of them both going wide so absolutely fantastic win for for for, for Oliveira and for Tech 3 and for all of Hervé Poncheral's team that have been trying for 20 years um, I was trying to think of a kind of Formula 1 equivalent and I think the closest I got was if Damon Hill had pulled off the Arrows win at Hungary in 1997 yeah. I think it would have been comparable to that in terms of how long they waited and the kind of stature of the team relative to the big boys so yeah huge congratulations and uh yeah fantastic story for the for the for the sport as well there was some track limits was providing some drama you know in the moto 2 race we saw the win overturned because um jorge martin you know touched the green runoff area but uh espagaro didn't didn't cop a penalty for running wide joan mir was was furious about that what's what's your take jamie yeah, well, we have to remember that Joan Mir was uh, was actually leading the first restart by quite a handsome margin before uh, Maverick Vinales' front brake decided to kind of spontaneously combust, uh, which which brought out the red flags. Um, and so Mir didn't have a new tyre um, for the for the second restart, so he couldn't fight with the top three guys. So a real shame for him because he's also knocking on the door for that first win, and maybe the fact he was kind of angry about not having the tools to win kind of meant he was a little bit more critical than perhaps he would have been i'm sure if he'd been in that you know well and truly in the fight with proper fresh tires available i'm sure he'd have probably had a different view but i'm sure as well that his time is going to come uh very soon because he's a huge talent and suzuki as well 
has kind of finally made that step to being a regular front-running team, it seems. It feels like the race is on to try and sort of take advantage of the fact that that Mark Marquez isn't there and we're seeing some great results <laughs> because of it. Like, hey, how much fun is it, Mousha, seeing, seeing some different names, even if I'm having a terrible time trying to pronounce them this morning. How <laughs> fun is it seeing some different names up there, you know, like uh, contending for wins and podiums? Um, uh, yeah, it, it is great. Uh, I want to see Suzuki nail a few. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it is, it is great. But, uh, I don't know, my heart breaks for Mark Marcus, it really does. When do we think he's going to be back? How many rounds do you think he's going to squeeze in? We've got like a 14 race championship, and he says he's back in October, right? Is that it? Yeah. Are we going to see him this year, Jamie? Do you reckon? It, so, judging from what the what the Honda team said at the weekend about the kind of length of Marquez's recovery, it looks like we might have him back. Maybe Le Mans at the earliest, but probably more likely Aragon, which of course is a very happy hunting ground for Marquez. He's you know, practically unbeatable there. And there are two races at Aragon. Um, he's also very strong at Valencia, two races there. And then Portimao to finish the season is kind of an unknown because there's never been a MotoGP race there. But if Marquez does come back at Aragon, I think he's got a good, and he's fully fit. You know, we have to assume that if he's taking all this time, he's really, you know, making sure that he is, you know, 100% before he jumps back on the bike after that kind of abortive attempt to, uh, to race in the second Hereth race. Um, I think we could see Marquez win a few races. And then the question is, you know, will anybody have a big enough lead? You know, Fabio Cartararo kind of been tipped as the man to really take advantage of Marquez's absence, but he was only 13th uh, in the second Red Bull ring race and the championships wide open at the moment. I mean, there's six, seven guys that are within a, a win, a race wins worth points of the top. So, uh, I'm not suggesting Marquez is going to come back from missing so many races to win the championship, but I think we will see him back uh, towards the end of the year fighting at the front, and I'll be surprised if we don't see him at least grab a couple of victories at the end there. It's funny how you look, we look at so many different racing series and you go, oh, if you only just took those couple of teams out, it'd be amazing. You know, if you took Mercedes out, yeah. the, the midfield, and like <laughs> MotoGP is actually providing a real life. Yeah, we're actually, exactly. we're actually seeing what happens when you when you just take the, you know, the sort of, the standout front runner out and it's um and it's been uh it's been a whole lot of fun and I think it will continue to be fun as the year sort of plays out. Well guys look it's been an absolute pleasure Mouse. I think we should let you uh you must be just about ready for bed I reckon over there. It's it's crazy. Uh, it's still Sunday. Uh, it's, it's, it's say eight forty two. I've still got to do my autosport magazine report. Oh so. it's Monday it's Monday afternoon <laughs> here. It's Monday afternoon and it's still All Sunday right. for you just actually uh, I'm just I'm just texting back and forth with Spencer Piggott at the moment. He's doing fine. I said anything broken. He said just the car. Uh, He's definitely uh, broken. No question about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as he was spinning, he was thinking, I really hope I don't hit the pit in. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, you did hit the pit in, mate. But yeah, uh, but yeah, he's doing fine. Yeah, unfortunately, he hasn't got a ride for the rest of the year. So that's what everyone's going to remember his 2020 for. Um, well, he's going to make some headlines. You never know. He might be able to drag a leverage a sponsor out of that. He's certainly going to. Yeah. He's going to get some. Uh, going to get some airtime around the world. I would reckon, guys. It's been a. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time for a chat, and thanks for everyone out there for taking the time for a listen. David Mousha Lopez. Where can people find you on Twitter? At David Mousha. Can't find me on Facebook. Oh, I mean, you can, but I don't respond. 
<laughs> that's, that's if anyone really wants to go stalking Mouse on Facebook, they can give it a go. Jamie, what about your Twitter handle? Jamie Klein. Klein is spelled K-L-E-I-N, like Calvin Klein, uh, and then with an underscore at the end. And you can see a very lovely picture of me with the two-time Indy 500 winner taken last year uh, when I was lucky enough to visit Indianapolis back in the days when fans could actually attend motor races. It feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? And people could it fly does. to different countries. What a, yeah. What, yes. what a crazy exactly. time. What a crazy no, time. Jamie's stuck, Jamie stuck in Japan forever, man. What a shame. Well, there are, there are worse places to be stuck, though, so I know, don't I worry don't about know. me. Last time I had to. <laughs> I agree. So Send some food. Send some food down here. Anyway, I'm at ABL Melbourne on Twitter and the motorsport.com podcast will be back next week. And between now and then, you can follow all the news at motorsport.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.